the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 21. The Anglo-Saxons. During our episode on the Picts, we described how the Romans abandoned Great Britain in the year 410. The Romans conquered a large amount of British territory in the year 43, after a couple of failed invasions by Julius Caesar and a number of intended invasions by the Emperor Augustus. The Romans established the city of Londinium at the site of the modern city of London and heavily influenced a lot of the culture of the Britons, the indigenous people of the island. After the conquest of many tribes of the south, which famously included the army of the legendary Queen Boudicca, the Romans pushed northwards until they were stretched and unable to conquer the far north of the island. During the 3rd century there were a number of Christian persecutions within the Roman Empire and it would take the accession of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great to prevent such persecutions going forward. Christianity was in Britain, but it would disappear somewhat with the Romans in the 5th century. Many non-Roman peoples of the lands in and around the British Isles stepped up their aggressions towards the Romans in the late 4th century, including Saxons from the east. The Saxons were a Germanic peoples and it is thought that some of the Saxons tried to settle British lands, forcing the Celtic language speaking population to head westward into the lands of Wales and Cornwall. When the Romans were obliged to abandon their British interests to attend to the more urgent matters of the continent, British lands entered a period commonly known as the Dark Ages, in which we lost the benefit of Roman scribes to record the events occurring in Great Britain, and so we have to put a lot of the story of the time after 410 down to supposition due to some very ambiguous references. The Dark Ages The absence of Romans in Great Britain allowed migrations of seafaring Germanic peoples to venture over the seas to investigate and colonise the island. The Christian society of the Romans was left to become subject to the pagan traditions of those who had even not been converted or who had simply not been touched by Christianity, such as the Germanic Saxons. With the disappearance of the Romans, we see the disappearance of documentation of events, and this lack of clear knowledge 
has led peoples to refer to this period as the Dark Ages of British history. The lack of written accounts meaning that we are in the dark about what exactly was happening. However, due to the fact that there was a Christian presence in Great Britain, albeit the remnants of the once-present Roman occupation, we do have the works of a monk called Gildas from the kingdom of Strathclyde to give us an indication of what the Romans left behind. It tells the story of a desperate time to be a Briton, with considerable pressure from peoples such as the Picts and the Saxons, who were terrorising the Britons in an age where people were seemingly longing for the old days of relative Roman stability within their lands. He also describes a military battle called the Battle of Baden between the Romano-Britons of Great Britain and the Germanic invaders from overseas, including the Saxons, and also a Germanic tribal confederation called the Angles. We have encountered the Saxons on a few occasions already when telling the story of the Franks. The Franks were known to have joined some of the Saxon raids on Great Britain during the years of Roman occupation, but we also know that when the Franks became a major imperial entity under King Charlemagne a few centuries later, that the Saxons would be subjugated and eventually their lands would become the Duchy of Saxony within the Kingdom of Germany, which was a kingdom that evolved from the breakup of the Frankish Empire. The Angles came from the lands of the south of the Jutland Peninsula, which is often recognised as the mainland territory of the modern country of Denmark. The Angles were also of Germanic stock. Despite us knowing very little indeed about any details in relation to the Battle of Baden, we can assume that it likely happened within a century of the Roman abandonment of Great Britain. The man who is suggested to have led the Romano-Britons in this battle is called Ambrosius Aurelianus and he seems to embody the Romano-British population at the time with his parents being of royal status and a strong suggestion that he was a Christian man. Over time, Ambrosius has become the stuff of legend with the 12th century British historian Geoffrey of Monmouth referring to him as the uncle of King Arthur. King Arthur has been established in history as a Briton who defended his lands against the invading Saxons and Angles, but there are many historians who doubt his existence, preferring to suggest that his legend has been embellished by future writers such as Geoffrey of Monmouth, attempting to glorify the origins of the British people. The fact that his name is known is likely to be evidence enough that today's King Arthur is based on a military leader of the Britons, possibly of royal stock. We can feel somewhat confident that the legendary stories of King Arthur are highly likely to have been dressed up for romantic effect, especially by passionate late middle-aged medieval knights looking to emulate a chivalrous individual glory that probably never existed. Both Gildas and Bede, an 8th century English monk, wrote of another king of the Britons called Vortigern. Vortigern once again is suggested to be 
legendary like Arthur by more modern historians. Vortigern is said to have had problems with the Scots and the Picts, which led him to recruit the mercenary services of two brothers of Germanic origin, called Hengist and Horsa, who would lead armies of Saxons, Angles and Jutes, who came from the northern lands of Jutland, so further north than the Angles. Both Hengist and Horsa are suggested by many to also be the stuff of romantic legend only. Vortigern rewarded Hengist and Horsa with lands in Great Britain and so they invited Jutes to the lands of the modern English counties of Kent and Hampshire. Saxons were invited to the modern English counties of Sussex, Middlesex and Essex. The names of these counties derived from South Saxon, Middle Saxon and East Saxon, as well as the lands of the traditional kingdom of Wessex, found towards the southwest of England and of course named after the West Saxons. The Angles were settled in the English region of East Anglia, plus the English Midlands and the English Northeast. Once these Germanic tribes had arrived and settled, they would take liberties to expand their influence, and this is what brought them into conflict with the Britons, and why we have the story of King Arthur and the Battle of Baden. The Heptarchy The Heptarchy is a retrospective reference to the seven main kingdoms of the lands of the modern country of England that emerged after the settlement of the Anglo-Saxons, a catch-all phrase for all of the Germanic immigrants. It appears that the new Germanic immigrants ruled over the existing Romano-Britain population and that the coming centuries saw a fusion of cultures that represented a progression for the British populations and a distinguishing of the Anglo-Saxons from their Angle and Saxon brothers and sisters back in the lands of their origin. Saxons took control of a large portion of the lands in the south of the island and this was called the Kingdom of Wessex, the land of the West Saxons. Angles would take control of a huge expanse of land in the middle of the modern English lands which would become the Kingdom of Mercia, a borderland of Anglo expansion against territory that remained under the control of the Britons. Germanic immigrants used a word similar to Welsh for the Britons, which has survived to eventually refer to the specific lands of the modern country of Wales, which borders the lands of Mercia. Bernicia was a territory that stretched from the estuary called the Firth of Forth in the modern country of Scotland, down the east coast of Great Britain, possibly beyond the modern Scottish-English border, and this was taken by migrating Angles. During the 7th century, this kingdom would merge with the Angle Kingdom of Dera to its south to form the powerful Kingdom of Northumbria. Wessex, Mercia and Northumbria represent the three most talked about Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the Heptarchy. As these three kingdoms expanded and established their territories, 
Wessex would dominate the south of England and would be bordered at its north by Mercia, which in turn would be bordered by Northumbria. Four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were established in the southeast of the island of Great Britain, namely East Anglia, Essex, Kent and Sussex. These four smaller kingdoms alongside the three larger kingdoms would make up the seven kingdoms of the Heptarchy, the lands of Great Britain under Germanic control. The Romano-Britain population during the years of Roman occupation had been exposed to Christianity, but Christian practices became less recognised due to the pagan nature of the Germanic immigrants. In the year 590, the highly revered Gregory the Great had become the Pope. Gregory was highly opinionated and openly disclosed his criticisms of the Church of Constantinople and decided to focus on spreading papal influence in Western Europe. Gregory was aware that King Ethelbert of Kent had married a Frankish princess called Bertha. The Franks had been converted to Christianity during the reign of King Clovis around a hundred years earlier, so Gregory spotted an opportunity to target pagan Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of Great Britain in a bid to convert their populations. Gregory would select a prior in Rome called Augustine to travel to Great Britain and meet with King Ethelbert at the Kentish city of Canterbury. Ethelbert did not seem to need much persuading to convert Kent into a Roman Catholic Christian kingdom and so the success of this Gregorian mission had begun. Augustine became the first Archbishop of Canterbury, a position whose occupant remains as the leading clergyman of the Church of England. From here, the conversion of neighbouring kingdoms was attempted and hindered by some of the devout pagans who had resisted conversion. It is important to remember that the Christian Church had already existed in Great Britain thanks to the Romans and it was because Germanic immigrants were still pagan that the culture of the island moved back towards pagan tradition. After the disappearance of the Romans from Great Britain, the son of a Christian minister was captured and taken to Ireland. The teenage boy's name was Patrick, and he survived his ordeal by clinging onto a Christian faith that he had not originally given much time to. After escaping back to Great Britain, Patrick would become a Christian minister like his father before him, before deciding to travel back to Ireland to convert Irish societies to Christianity. This all happened before the Gregorian mission, and as such, the brand of Christianity that evolved in Ireland was an insular Celtic Christianity, which had become slightly distinct from Roman Catholic Christianity. Young Patrick would go on after his lifetime to become the patron saint of Ireland. When a Christian abbey was founded at Lindisfarne by the Kingdom of Northumbria during the 7th century, it would be Irish monks of the insular Celtic Christian church who would inhabit the abbey.
This meant that there were two methods of Christian practice in operation simultaneously in Anglo-Saxon lands, and they would disagree on certain cultural traditions, such as the calculation of the date of Easter. So a council was summoned at Whitby Abbey to resolve the issue of whether Northumbria would observe Celtic Christian traditions or Roman Christian traditions. Eventually, English churches would be more observant of Roman traditions and this Synod of Whitby in the year 664 was a major step on the way to this Romanisation. Historians have been highly intrigued by the mysterious nature of Dark Age England and the earliest Anglo-Saxon years. A manuscript known as the Noel Codex has survived since this time and it contains an epic poem which has captured the imagination of many who have sought to translate it from its Old English form in an attempt to discover more about the nature of the Heptarchy. The epic poem tells the story of a Germanic hero called Beowulf who lived in Scandinavian lands. Although the epic poem is not totally unlike a Viking saga in terms of its outlandish content, such as Beowulf eventually dying after slaying a dragon, it is believed by some that the content is based on actual historical characters. Beowulf points us towards the fact that Germanic kings resembled military leaders much more than the modern notion of a regal monarch surrounded by pomp and ceremony, although excavations from this period have revealed much in the way of royal halls, so pomp and ceremony were certainly not absent. Bede We mentioned the Northumbrian monk called Bede earlier in the episode, and Bede, often referred to as the Venerable Bede, is celebrated for his literary work, which helps us to piece together the history of Great Britain between the 5th and 8th centuries. He grew up at a Benedictine monastery in the Northumbrian town of Jarrow, where an extensive library was at his disposal. During the first half of the 8th century, Bede wrote a work called The Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which tells us of the development of the Christian Church in Anglo-Saxon lands, and has therefore become a vital source of historical information. Bede helped to popularise the use of AD, Anno Domini, when numerically describing years relative to the lifetime of Jesus Christ. Bede confirms the role within Anglo-Saxon Britain of a Bretfelder. The Bretfelder is interpreted to be the king who is regarded as the overlord of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It is unclear exactly how a Bretfelder was elected or what his specific duties would have been. Certainly, Bede was able to name historical Bretfelders, many of which were supported by the texts of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was created as a historical reference to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms from the 9th century onwards. Ethelbert of Kent 
the king who welcomed Augustine to Canterbury to become the first archbishop, is listed as one of the earliest Bretfolders. We also see the East Anglian king called Redwald, listed by both sources, and he is most well known as the likely occupant of the Sutton Hoo Anglo-Saxon ship burial, excavated in the English county of Suffolk during the 20th century. During the 7th century, we can see the emergence of the Kingdom of Northumbria as the dominant Anglo-Saxon kingdom. One of their Bretfelders was King Oswiu of Northumbria, who oversaw the significant Synod of Whitby, which was described earlier in the episode. The main opposition to the power of Northumbria was the Kingdom of Mercia, and a series of battles took place between Northumbria and Mercia and their respective allies. Oswiu's son, Aethrith, ruled Northumbria during the 670s when Northumbria had successfully repelled the aggressions of the Picts in the north and the Mercians. Ultimately, the temptation of an assault of the Picts was too much for Aethrith, who marched into the mountainous terrains of modern Scottish lands where he was slain at the Battle of Dunnechton in the year 685. At this time, the infant Bede was growing up in the Northumbrian monastery at Jarrow, where he would witness his home kingdom weaken in power to the Mercians, whose rulers became the Bretfelders going into the 8th century. Mercia The Mercians were now showing dominance over the Midlands, forcing the Northumbrians back north of the Mersey and Humber rivers, but Wessex was also becoming quite powerful to their south, so the Mercians needed to be aware of potential threats to both the south and the north. Bede told us of a West Saxon king called Ine, who inherited a large Wessex kingdom and established a great trade centre at what has become the modern southern English port of Southampton, as well as a law code which may have been vital for providing judicial infrastructure for the future of Wessex. What is interesting about Ine's law code is that it distinguishes between Britons and Saxons, demonstrating an integration of populations. We can also see a record of the requirement for constant military service which demonstrates that warfare was somewhat constant between the rival kingdoms. It wouldn't always be neighbouring kingdoms that were in battle. It would also be factions within kingdoms competing for supremacy. Despite Mercia being the most powerful of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, it was subject to internal conflict between competing rulers. Etelbald came back from exile to claim the Mercian throne after the death of his cousin, and he would rule Mercia for almost 40 years before he was eventually killed by his own bodyguards in 757. And after a succession crisis, a cousin of Etelbald, called Offa, 
would become the new king. Offa was a very ambitious ruler. He would force East Anglia, Essex, Kent, Sussex and Wessex to acknowledge Mercy's overlordship during his reign and he declared himself the king of all of the lands of England. But Northumbria never submitted to Offa's will. So Offa managed to betroth his own daughter to the Northumbrian king in a game of diplomacy. Offa's view of the world around him extended beyond the island of Great Britain, with his reign being contemporary to that of King Charlemagne of the Franks. Offa would consider it prudent to attempt to garner a positive relationship with Charlemagne and also the Pope in order to consolidate and validate his position as a great international king. We sometimes forget that Anglo-Saxon kingdom was a part of a wider European network of realms and especially when it comes to Offa due to his greatest legacy being the earthworks which represented a border between Mercia and Wales. The Britons of Wales had managed to resist the Anglo-Saxons since their original migrations but Offa had ambitions of conquering the Welsh. Part of Offa's exchanges with the Welsh directed him to build an earthworks from the Severn River estuary in the south to the Dee River estuary in the north, which would keep the Welsh in the landmass of Wales and help to prevent any unwelcome Welsh raids on Mercian territory. Although Offa did make good decisions to strengthen his realm by attempting to standardise the coinage to remain on a level footing with Charlemagne who was attempting to make the similar advancements to the Frankish Empire. Offa also had a reputation for being a ruthless and heartless warlord whose actions of terror were being remembered by the Welsh for many decades after Offa's death. Vikings the Anglo-Saxon chronicler at the court of the Frankish king Charlemagne recorded the devastating Viking raid on the Northumbrian monastery at Lindisfarne as a punishment for a lack of piety. While we cannot be sure of that fact, we can be sure that the news of this raid sent shockwaves throughout the British Isles and Western Europe. It would be at the beginning of the 9th century that Wessex would wriggle away from Mercian overlordship and begin to rebuild its independent reputation in the south of the island. Over the course of the first half of the 9th century, Viking raiders would take control of many of the outlying lands of Great Britain, including the Shetlands and the Orkneys, the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, which would cause great concern for the societies of the modern lands of Scotland, including the Scots and the Picts, who seemed to be pooling their resources by the middle of the century. In the year 865, Viking raids turned into a full-scale invasion with the arrival of the Great Heathen Army, as named in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, in the Kingdom of East Anglia. Powerless to resist, the East Anglians had to cooperate with the Viking coalition and so the Vikings were allowed to prepare for a conquest of the Northumbrian city 
of Eofawik, modern York. From here, the Vikings marched on Nottingham to force the Mercians to agree to terms before they returned to and completely conquered East Anglia, taking it as their own. The only remaining Anglo-Saxon kingdom for the Vikings to tackle was the kingdom of Wessex to the south. The West Saxon king was a man called Alfred, and he too would attempt to negotiate terms with the Vikings. Alfred paid the Vikings a tribute which fortunately coerced the Vikings to leave and return to York, where they would make plans to impress their authority over Northumbria and Mercia. The Vikings were successful, and this meant that the only Anglo-Saxon kingdom left to be conquered was King Alfred's Wessex. The Vikings returned in 876 to attack Wessex once again. What followed was a game of cat and mouse around the lands of Wessex between the West Saxons led by King Alfred and the Danish Vikings led by Guthrum. Guthrum achieved the upper hand causing damage to Alfred's army and forcing him to flee to the marshes of deepest Wessex where he could remain undiscovered. From here... Alfred was able to gather his loyal supporters from around Wessex to plan a counter-offensive against the Vikings. When the Vikings finally learned of Alfred's ability to gather an army, Guthrum gathered his own troops and the two forces met at a bitterly fought Battle of Eddington in 878. Alfred managed to gain the upper hand, and broke the Viking army causing them to flee and forcing Guthrum to negotiate terms. It was at this point that the lands of what would become the modern country of England were split into two. Wessex, which would soon achieve the overlordship of Mercia, ruled over all of the lands to the south of a dividing line which ran from the Mersey River estuary to the Thames River estuary, all apart from the lands of the modern country of Cornwall, which, like Wales, had retained its Britonic identity. The other side of the line to the north belonged to the Danish Vikings, whose origin was slightly different from the Norse Vikings, who had occupied the outlying lands around Great Britain and land centred around the modern city of Dublin, on the island of Ireland. The Danes held territories all the way north to the Firth of Forth, apart from the lands of Strathclyde, once again controlled by Britonic peoples. The West Saxon ruled territories represented a united Anglo-Saxon realm, which needed to remain united in the face of the Danish presence. This would represent the nucleus of what would become the modern country of England, and for Alfred's part in saving the last remaining Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex from falling to the Vikings, he would earn an epithet and he is referred to in history as Alfred the Great. Alfred's own daughter, Etelfled, would succeed her husband as the Lord of the Mercians on his death in 911. During Aethelflaed's reign, she would lead successful campaigns, including capturing the city of Derby from the Vikings, 
but she was denied the pleasure of negotiating favourable terms with the dames by her untimely death. Her brother, the King of Wessex, and the son of Alfred the Great, known to history as Edward the Elder, took control of Mercia after her death, and he would be succeeded by his own son, Ethelstan. Ethelstan was able to see through what his aunt Ethelfled had achieved a decade earlier by successfully receiving the submission of the Danes at York and effectively uniting all of the former Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, declaring himself as the king of the English people. It wouldn't be incorrect to say that we can recognise this as the beginning of the modern nation-state of England as we know it to be more or less today. Ettelstan decided that he would invade Scottish territory and this caused the kings of Strathclyde, Alipa and Dublin to form an alliance against Ettelstan. Alipa was the kingdom that would become Scotland and had been formed by the consolidation of Scots and Picts since the 9th century. The kingdom of Dublin had been founded by Norse Vikings. The coalition would invade Ettelstan's England and Ettelstan would meet the invaders with an army at the Battle of Brunanburh in 937. The exact location of Brunanburh is unknown but the battle is immortalised in a poem recorded in the pages of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the collection of annals commissioned by Alfred the Great to create a national history of the Anglo-Saxons which has become a vital source for historical reference of the Dark Ages following Roman abandonment of Britannia. York remained a kingdom in its own right, subject to Ettelstan, until the Norse Vikings invaded and took the city, until the death of the Viking leader allowed the English to retake York, but this time the lands of York would become wholly part of the Anglo-Saxon nation-state. So the story of the Anglo-Saxons is the story of how England became England, but now that we can recognise the kingdom of the English people, we should remember that the story of the Anglo-Saxons continues into the 11th century and the culture of the population remains Anglo-Saxon, even if we can cite the Norman conquest of England as the end of the Anglo-Saxon period of English history. The language of the Anglo-Saxons was enhanced by the introduction of French language, but it was essentially Germanic and the true ancestor of the modern English language. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Anglo-Saxons. Here we are in my home country of England. So uh, this is one subject that um, I've come across over and over again in terms of my history studies over the years. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure to talk about it now. Um, obviously, there's something a little bit special about talking to your, talking about the history of your own country. Um, so it's been my pleasure to talk about it and then of course there are a couple of significant battles that need to be covered which do involve the Anglo-Saxons so this won't be the last time we talk about them but certainly next week 
uh, we come to a very important episode and one that we can't avoid for much longer. It's become significant now and we keep hearing about these guys and they're one of the most popular groups of people in history. They are the Vikings, so we're going to be visiting them next week and finding out all about them. Um, are all the things that you hear and see on the TV actually true about these guys? Um, so that's uh, to look forward to next week. But thanks a lot for listening to this week's episode about the Anglo-Saxons. The Ancient World Cup So this week in the Ancient World Cup, we witnessed the first of the second round matches and these are straight knockout matches between two of the ancient peoples uh, who are listed among the 64 original entrants in this competition. Uh, Now that we're down to the last 32, it's straight knockout now to get down to the last 16, uh, which will be round three. So who was in the first matchup of round of 32? It was, uh, this week, the Gauls against the Macedonians. So the Gauls, with their uh, wonderful history in the, in the lands of France uh, before and uh, after the years of uh, the Roman Republic. And uh, mainly, um, they are known for the fact that they sacked Rome uh, very early on in the year 390 BCE and then they held out until Julius Caesar came along and uh, conquered their lands um, right at the end of the Roman Republic years. Um, and the Gauls, certainly, their legacy uh, remained uh, very much part of French history. And uh, their opponents uh, were the Macedonians, who uh, are obviously their most famous leader is uh, Alexander the Great, who made that incredible expansion of that of, of his, this relatively small kingdom in terms of its geographical size um, to become this great imperial realm, um, albeit briefly but the, through the leadership of one man, quite an incredible achievement, uh, you know, is the likes that we, we rarely see in the history of the world. Um, so you were voting on that this week, and um, I'm very pleased to announce that we, we posted the poll in, in a number of different locations. Uh, we received a grand total of 75 votes, and uh, the, here is the result. Um, with uh, 63% of the vote and advancing through to round three of the competition are the Macedonians. So Macedonians, 63% of the vote. We say goodbye uh, finally to the Gauls uh, with 37% of the vote. Now, also this result is is interesting for another reason. Uh, All of the uh, matches in this round Uh, pit group winners from round one against group runners-up from round one. So in this case, it was the Gauls who won their group in round one and the Macedonians became runners-up. But in in maybe a potentially surprising result, the runners-up of their group defeated the winners of their group. So the Macedonians being runners-up 
they were runners up in the group stage to the ancient Egyptians, who obviously are one of the one of the very uh, very favoured teams to win this entire tournament. So um, interesting, nonetheless. Anyway, let's move on to the next match. And uh, this week we'll be voting all over again, but this time it will be the Hephthalites, um, who are also known as the White Huns, um, very much a part of uh, mid, um, sort of first millennium uh, steppe culture uh, migrations into the lands of the of northern India, that kind of area, the Indus Valley. Um, and they will be competing against another steppe culture, uh, the Scythians, who have that great history of um, of really sort of dominating the lands of the steppe, of the Caspian Pontic steppe, um, for many, many uh, centuries. Um, during the period of ancient Greece and and uh, and that that kind of period, it was it was very much the Scythians were very much a part of that. Um, so that's next week's match, the Hephthalites versus the Scythians. And um, if you want to know more about both those societies, I do tend to post links, particularly on Twitter. So if you don't follow the History of the World podcast on Twitter yet, I recommend you go, give us a follow, and then uh, you'll be able to get some more information about these ancient World Cup teams and um, be able to make an educated choice as to who you want to advance. Listener messages and reviews. Andy Dolphin wrote in this week to put, Hey, just started listening and reached volume 1, episode 12 already, enjoying it very much. Was looking ahead on Spotify and there's nothing beyond volume 3, episode 22. I see on the webpage that you are still pumping them out will they be available on spotify later andy well um as far as i was aware spotify are publishing all the episodes so there shouldn't be any missing um but be interested to hear from other listeners to know if they've experienced a similar problem with the spotify feed hopefully andy has sorted it out uh since sending me that messages uh, uh that message i should say um, Benjamin Haythorn uh, also wrote a message. I'd like to say thank you to Benjamin for his message. Um, a couple of reviews this week. Um, first one from Ireland, Route 108, uh, wrote in saying, Hi Chris, love the podcast. You've kept me company during the lockdowns here in Ireland. I was always interested in history and in my younger years wanted to be an archaeologist. However, that didn't come to fruition. Like all your other supporters, I love how you put across quite detailed information in an in a manner easy to understand. There are no buts in this review. Keep up the good work. Ruth Devers, uh, pronounced Devers as opposed to Devers, as most pronounce it. Thank you, um, Ruth, um, from Ireland. Um, would I, Glass, from the United States of America, has put a gloriously told tale of humankind's epic story this is a long overdue five-star review of as i've listened to every episode through to volume four many episodes i have actually enjoyed multiple times gathering new info from every listening and i just 
Wish that history had been told like this when I was back at school. Chris's work uh, joins the likes of Kevin Stroud's history of English as essential listening if you want to understand the true roots and formation of the modern world. Undoubtedly, there are other podcasts that shine lights on perspectives of other cultures uh, and language families, and I look forward to exploring them. But as an English-speaking American with a strong sense of connection to where my family came from, the combination of listening to Kevin's history of English and Chris's history of the world has given me a much deeper appreciation of the long and tumultuous human story and how we came to be the peoples we now are. Thank you, Chris, for your incredible, humble and engaging approach to telling this tale. You are like a friend I haven't uh, met yet, but your voice has constantly joined me as I walk and work. And even when I've run out of new episodes, I can always be happy to know that there are tales aplenty that I can scroll back to and enjoy yet again. Cheers to you, Chris. Thanks for your amazing work to make this podcast a reality. Well, that's a, a fantastic review. That's uh, a lot of time and effort has been put to uh, be as articulate as, as you've made that review. So thank you, uh, Would I Glass. Now, um, if you are enthusiastic about my podcast, then you'll be pleased to know that, of course, you can support it. You can make financial contributions to the podcast. All you need to do is just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and then you'll find there's a link to the Patreon account for the History of the World podcast. Sign up there, make a monthly contribution and you can achieve wonderful rewards such as gifts and opportunities. All of them are listed there and unlike other Patreon accounts you don't have to oblige yourself to a, a nominal monthly contribution um, to get the reward you can accumulate it over any amount of time and I'm always happy to honour the reward uh, that way as well so uh, not everyone does that I'm sure but um, I'm happy to do it um, this week's uh, new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati those people who have made contributions to the podcast are Gemma, Matt Black and HT. All of you are now lifelong members of the History of the World podcast, Luminati. I cannot thank you enough. All of your contributions genuinely make a difference to this project and you should feel very, very proud of yourselves indeed. Okay, that's it for another week. Thank you very much once again for listening to this week's episode. Next week... It's a biggie. We're going to be talking about the Vikings. Don't miss it. Until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.